Hey, it's Ben. Um, and I want to introduce you to a dear friend, Paul. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Nice to meet you. You too. This is Magic Camp. Welcome to season two. Season two of Magic Camp kicking off in the summer of 2021. Um, for those of you who have been anxiously refreshing your podcast app for the last six months, you'll know that we haven't had an episode since 2020, which was the end of season one, and that was intentional. So you're welcome. Right. <clears throat> and now, Paul, you're free man. You're done with school for the year. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, I assume you do you d- did what I did every year after leaving school, which is I'll never have to see blank again, listing off my teachers' names, but you did it with your students. <laughs> true, true, um, which isn't actually true. You still see the students. Um, you just don't have to teach them anymore, except for the ones who fail, and those are the ones who you don't want to teach again. So, um, But I'm not thinking about that. It's summer, the end of a long school year. So I'm just in full summer of Paul mode. I've got a lazy boy recliner that if you hit the side of it, it opens up and it has a bunch of soda inside. That's so cool. Yeah. That's awesome. What about you, Ben? What's so up? So you're, America's back to work. America's mm-hmm. open for business again. Not me, not, not teachers. You. Nope. Hmm. Because Interesting. teachers don't like to work. It's true. <laughs> Uh, good. I've actually started a new job, so that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty cool job. Yeah, it's a fine job. It's a fine job. It's still a job. Um, but yeah, just wiling out, hanging out. Um, happy Pride Week, or month. Happy Pride Month, Paul. Mm-hmm. Saying that to straight guys <laughs> in a knowing way. Hey, happy Pride Month. You're a bachelor, right? Yeah, you hmm. should see how pissed off they get, man. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, things are, things are really looking up in, in the old U.S. of A. Um, coronavirus doesn't exist anymore. Everybody knows that. Um, President Joseph Robinette Biden has solved the economy. And um, everything is a win right now, as opposed to last year, which everything was an epic fail. Absolutely. Yeah. Um... Sounds pretty good. And uh, we're taking this opportunity to bring you more Magic Camp. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got some exciting stuff planned. We do. And I think it's worth noting that we have had some discussions about widening the purview a little bit of Magic Camp in Season 2. We don't necessarily know what that new purview will encompass, but we know that you know we've hit kind of our marks. We've hit our our big names in season one. Um, you know, really hitting that shuffle ball change five, six, seven, eight. <laughs> and now we're looking to you know mix things up a little bit with maybe a little more something a little bit jazzier, like mm, a jazz, like square. a jazz square, yeah, um, or jazz. So anything is possible in Magic Camp in season two, just like anything is possible in America in twenty twenty one. Wow, I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Speaking of America, we're talking about <clears throat> the Paris avant-garde in this episode, which Ooh. has is, despite what we just said, is actually pretty close to home with a lot of the things we talked about season one. But I just think we have not yet plumbed the depths of this period 
which is really important. Agreed. And interesting, and it's not like these are the best or the most uh, important or, I don't know, anything artists, but there's there's a lot to mull over. I don't know. Yeah. It's just, why not? Yeah, by broaden our purview, I meant we were going to now talk about European male artists from the early 20th century and not just the late 19th century. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so that's where we're taking you. We're taking you to the streets of Paris circa 19 aughts, 19 teens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a book here that puts it really between 1885 and 1915, and everyone agrees World War II shut that shit, or one shut that shit down. Right. Party's over. No, no more having fun. Um, 20th century actually sucks. Mm-hmm. But during those 30 years um, was a flourishing of the avant-garde, modern artists of, obviously we talk, talk a lot about visual artists, but literature and everything else. Um, and Paris was really the cultural hotbed where that was happening. And you've got all the characters you love, Picasso, we did not release yet our, our episode on Rousseau, but he was really one of the earliest inspirations and forerunners of that. Um, other blokes and frogs, um, you got some Americans getting in the mix, Hemingway. Lots of Russians, lots of yeah. ex, uh, Czechs and, and Austrians and people from all over the map. Gertrude Stein turned up. Happy Pride Month. Um, <laughs> yeah. Happy Pride Month to Gertrude Stein, one of the legendary, um, you know, queer writers of all time. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, she was not outdone, or she she was outdone by these, these Parisian folks. Mm. They knew how to party. Right. And from the stories, she was a little more a fly on the wall, was not getting as debauched as these uh, French painters and poets. What do you mean by debauched? On a regular basis. Drunk and doing infidelity. Breath play, blood play. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Doing stuff with animals. (laughs) A.K.A. (laughs) fauvism. Yeah. Fauvism and, and flora and, and faunaism, mm-hmm. doing stuff with plants. and mm-hmm. um, Yeah, so that, that is what we're talking about. Not necessarily going to get jump straight into it. I don't know. Um, but let me just set the stage a little bit. Basically, we're just going to try and look at a couple um, good descriptions of it. So like I said, um, Paris between 1885, which would be after the... Impressionists and the quote-unquote post-impressionists, so Van Gogh and Gauguin are sort of fading away and inspiring a new generation to take over the cafes and the salons and decide what art is going to be in the 20th century. Um, and yeah, that it's mostly happening, obviously, outside of the academy and the official salons, um, and it's at these soirees and banquets and dinner parties where the new uh, art is being born, the avant-garde, which really carried on through to everything we think about as modern art, right, in Paris and and abroad. Um, Let me just read this one to to help set the stage. In its prolonged romp through the 80s and 90s, that would be the 1800s, 
Uh, and into the avant-garde, Paris scarcely knew what it was excited about. Was it liberation, a revolution, a victory, a last fling, a first debauch? Amid the externals of funerals and fashions, the city knew only that it was having a good time and making a superb spectacle of itself. Sensing this prevailing mood, artists more than any other group saw their opportunity. Exactly in the years following Victor Hugo's funeral in 1885, all the arts changed direction as if they had been waiting, <clears throat> awaiting a signal. Along a discernible line of demarcation, they freed themselves from the propulsion of the 19th century and responded to the first insistent tugs of the 20th. Mm. Pretty good. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so to piggyback off that, um, that's one of my least favorite phrases. And if I could piggyback off that. Please do. Just say, please okay. piggyback off, off, off my first comment. And I will. So Hemingway, who's you know always a talking point in American letters, but even more so lately because of the excellent, I almost forgot his name. What's his name? Jeez. What? what? Uh, the documentary guy. Oh. Um, <laughs> fuck. Oh, my God. I, Ken Burns. I, I, I wanted to say Steve Jobs or Rick Steves or something like that. John, John McCain. <laughs> right. Uh, who is featured in the documentary. It's an excellent documentary. I'm not being sarcastic. It's very, very good. Um, but the kind of literary iterations of the avant-garde in Paris probably took place a little bit after what Ben is going to talk about, which are the more the visual aspects. And you could definitely make a strong case that they were the forerunners of, of those modern movements and that the literary uh, movement that followed was very closely inspired by a lot of those people. And that in fact, in uh, here's a quote from old Ernie. Uh, if I walked down by different streets to the Jardin du Luxembourg in the afternoon, I could walk through the gardens and then go to the Musée du Luxembourg where the great paintings were that have now mostly been transferred to the Louvre and the Jus de Pomme. I went there nearly every day for the Cezannes and to see the Manets and the Monets and the other Impressionists that I had first come to know about in the Art Institute of Chicago. I was learning something from the painting of Cezanne that made writing simple, true sentences far from enough to make the stories have dimensions that I was trying to put in them. I was learning very much from him, but I was not articulate enough to explain it to anyone. Besides, it was a secret. I love that. I love that um, he's so understated, classic Hemingway, in the way he's describing what he was doing with his prose. People often parody or misunderstand Hemingway with when he says stuff like that and says, write the, the truest sentence you know or, or writing simple true sentences is often interpreted to mean like write like a dolt, mm-hmm. write like a, like a average Joe, which mm-hmm. he was, but it's the texture and the accumulation of those sentences and the fracture of fractures that he was creating within language that were allowing for his stories and his his imagery and his cadences to take on the the vibrance vibrancy in the life that people knew him for so he was deconstructing language in the same way that Cezanne and their ilk were deconstructing painting um, to its to its more primitive simplistic forms and 
this is why I don't think Hemingway should be taught the way he's taught in the high school classroom because because that requires too much context to explain to 15-year-olds. I certainly didn't understand that at the time. That's another point entirely. I'm off on a teacher rant. So why don't you do something about it? Maybe I will. When's the last time you read Hemingway? Um, besides this book I'm reading right now, uh, like a, a couple weeks ago because, because of the documentary. But before that, it had been a couple years. I mean, I read, I read several of his books in college and hadn't really touched them since then. Um, and even then, probably didn't understand what, was, what he was doing because you need a really thorough context of the literary form of the way language was used up until that point mm-hmm. and the way he just said, fuck it. And this is not a Hemingway podcast. Um, I know he's problematic. <laughs> um, and I'm not, I'm not the world's biggest Hemingway fan, but, but I think he's, he's, um, he's worth the hype. He really is. Unpopular opinion. Hemingway is a good writer. I'm trying to remember how I even got the idea of like what Hemingway was supposed to be, mm-hmm. or any setup that I was given. As probably a very student. little. Yeah. I, I mean, they teach uh, farewell to arms. Yeah. To tenth graders, which you can understand. It's about love <laughs> and getting your dick shut off in the war, shot off in the war. I remember a guy all getting that a hemorrhage. Is that? Yep. No, it's the wife. Uh, yeah. So there, there are his big themes that are, that are, you know, graspable. You know, the iceberg, the iceberg was very big and that it's an important concept for people to grasp and understand, but um, that's only the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> wow. Anyway. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just graft him in here to the, to the Paris avant-garde as the kind of American representative, along with Gertrude Stein, um, of, the, of, you know, Modern, the front runners of modernism. Yeah, and a f- I, I really like the documentary, and I do want to read some Hemingway now. Um, one thing that I thought was funny is, you know, some, it might be Tobias Wolf. Dude, it is. Who says, I hate the myth of Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Is it him? Yeah. I love Hemingway. I hate the myth of Hemingway. Um, That's another thing I love about the documentary is that Tobias Wolf is yeah. prominently featured. He's one of my favorite writers. Um, In spite of that, though, like, (laughs) I mean, it didn't, like, surprise, nothing really surprised me about his personal life because it's all pretty much true. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's a guy who's, like, as big as his legend, you know? He actually was. Right. Um, He was a bullshitter in general, but, like, he eventually lived up to his, right. his bullshit, right. bullshit nature, I guess. Yeah. Um, anyways, what I'm trying to say is it's sort of the same way of like talking about the Paris avant-garde, turn of the century modernism, is the big personalities are like really mm-hmm. inseparable from the movement. Yeah. Think about Picasso, like um, just an absolute swaggering bald pimp, right? <laughs> 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 totally. I forgot. I did. I, for, I think he had a comb over, but that in that time, that oh, was no, that dude. was being he was, he was bicked up. Was he? Yeah. Later, yeah, he was. Yeah. You're right. For yeah. quite a while. Later, later in his life, I think. But um, good point. I never thought of Picasso as a bald pimp. If you got one of those shirts he wore, 
be pretty cool. With the uh, like the stripey. Oh yeah, that's right. Those are cool. You know who else is an absolute alpha? Um, and I never thought about it, although it's obvious. Kelly Slater. Oh, totally, dude. That guy's a bald legend. Absolute, absolutely smooth. Yeah, for sure. Um, smooth dome, <laughs> not smooth brain. Smooth dome. Oh, he's awesome. Um, <clears throat> anyways, Picasso. Uh, I mean, this is somewhat out of scope, but even Gauguin, you know, of like these horny toad, kind of just like. And actually, I was just yeah. watching the the uh, parts unknown where they're talking about. Uh, not Algiers. What is the one in Morocco? Uh, the city? Yeah. Um, it's not Marrakesh. Tangiers. Tangiers. Yeah, yeah. like the, sort of the modern characters who, who turned up there for a life of adventure. Right. Um, I mean, William S. Rose being a big one, but bef- before I didn't then, know even, that. was Gogan in there? I, I feel like he went. He definitely went to Africa. I'm not sure where he was. He probably did. Yeah. Yeah, but anyways, like, there's a lot of these larger-than-life characters right. who are problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, that's because they actually get down to the whole thesis and the whole idea of what was happening here, which was playing out this experiment of the 20th century of modernity of a true liberated individual, mm-hmm. right? We're... We've entered into the world after the death of God. And these people are really taking seriously the task of becoming, what comes after the next, the last man? Like the overman, you know? Right. Of cutting themselves free from convention and morality and religion and all forms of authority and giving free reign to their consciousness and their subjective viewpoint and uh not even that they want to like foist it upon others but to give full room to breathe their vision of the world right and they all lived pretty incredible lives and that's kind of hard to resist or like it it has an irresistible nature right quality to it of just hearing someone like Hemingway's life of like they really they really went for it and they Mm -hmm. didn't back down from that Right, um, and that's yeah. that's also part part of like this period was really a time um, when artists were kind of bringing in this idea that there there's their art and their life and they go together mm-hmm. and that their life is going to be as uh, seriously artistic as their work, um, and so like yeah, this period especially it's they're living out this experiment on canvas or paper and in their actual lives. Mm -hmm. So just to interject here, to give us a little bit of, um, you know, just the basic dictionary definitions of things, because we know you don't know what avant-garde means. That's why you're here (laughs) for us to teach you. Um, No, I'm just kidding. So the word originates from the French language, as you can probably guess, which literally translates to vanguard, or yeah. foreguard, which was a military term mm-hmm. used to describe a small troop of highly skilled soldiers who went ahead of the rest of the army to explore the terrain and warn of possible danger. So they would be not just looking for, other, for the enemy, but, but scaling and, and assessing the terrain. If they're on right. a mountain pass, these are the people who are going over some 
incredibly narrow cliff or something along those lines. So they're basically like the Navy SEALs, the Navy freaking SEALs, dude. SEAL Team 6 featuring Chris Pratt um, type of guys. Uh, So the avant-garde artists can be described as a group of people who develop fresh and often very surprising ideas in visual art, literature, and culture at large, which is, of course, putting it mildly. And uh, wouldn't that apply to all art is maybe something I would ask. But you get the idea that this, these are the people who were scouting, going out, uh, not just looking ahead to the future, but um, looking for different possibilities, right? And there was a very high risk involved as well, I think is important, or a nice analog. That when you think about avant-garde art and you think about how many of these people we remember, how many of them actually had an impact, the reality is that it's only probably a very small number of them, Yeah. right? That you could go back and find all these avant-garde's and find a lot of art that at the time was probably as incomprehensible as it is now and didn't really make a, an impact. Or these are people who did things that got them thrown out of the art world entirely, right? Or who did things that were too yeah. experimental and right. were just simply con- considered either stupid or pornographic or whatever it may be. Yes. So it was a high-risk, high-reward sort of vocation as right. an artist. And actually, that's kind of the reason why it's like, why, why focus this heavily on, like, you know, canon of this part of art is it's not like that any of these individual works or people are, like, just, like, so special that they have right. to be the only people talked about for... 200 years like a lot of them have the quality that you could have very they could have so easily been lost to history like you're saying as probably 98% of them were like Henry Rousseau if he hadn't been recognized by like just a, a small group of this of this in crowd of Paris and like really forcefully exalted against critics and and the like big salons and stuff like that like would not be remembered at all, and that would be fine because there's plenty of Rousseau works where you're like, okay, like that's not special. Um, and then there's like a handful that are extremely special, and because this group of people, you know, were like talked about themselves enough and talked about their art enough and what they were doing, and like broke through that, you get to see someone who's like a obscure, like weirdo like Rousseau was and see just by focusing on this one person where he could be very, very special. Um, and that's cool. So like, it's just, it's just by the force of their conversation that like we get to glean a little bit of things that are otherwise like just would have been missed. I don't know if that makes sense. But the, the other thing, uh, that I was thinking about, like the avant-garde, the question of that's always coming up of like, is this, is this real shit? You know, a bunch of painters and poets like sitting around and drinking and talking about how revolutionary they are, you know, is somewhat farcical on its face and more and more so over time, probably. But <laughs> I mean, in pretty literal terms, all these artists who called themselves revolutionary and were considered revolutionary and like that was their project it did bring about wars for the next two decades. Like right. it actually did happen. Yeah. From the, you know, quote unquote fascist futurists, like they 
they were revolutionary. They wanted a revolution, and it happened. Right, <laughs> like, right. And, and they were the visual propagandists of an entire movement. Right. And, yeah, so whether it's fascist revolutions or communist revolutions or, like, more commonly probably just, like, liberal democratic revolutions of, like, wiping away the last vestiges of feudalism, all that happened within, like, 20 years of these people pushing the issue. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying they did it, but there's actually a bit of proof in the pudding for them that was not the case for probably a lot of later artists. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that brings up a lot of thoughts for me that I'm going to try to keep in, in check here before we get off, off track. But would you like to give us a little bit, do you have more in the philosophical underpinnings of, of the avant-garde that you can share with us for those of us who are not to- still kind of not tracking with what exactly... You know, what does one avant-garde movement look like, or um, what's an example of this? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of movements stemming from all this. Like, it's everything coming out of post or impressionism, first of all, of, like, all of these movements are somewhat, like, pissy about impressionism because it's the people they're directly, like, trying to succeed. You know, they're the, they're the cool guys in the cafes, in the mid 19th century who are setting the terms and like bucking against the establishment and all these movements are like competing to succeed them. Um, and so they're, they're all sort of related. They're all like trying to push, push the conversation forward where it had been jump-started like by the impressionists and then by the post-impressionists for the first time since like the Renaissance. Right. And then, um, yeah, so there's a lot of stuff that comes out of, out of that. We talked about, like the futurists and the surrealists, and to some, um, yeah, like they're giving their own reactions, but nothing is as like central or like really the the biggest trunk of this is cubism. Yep, that's probably not going to surprise too many people. Um, I have a timeline question that is not important, but for my own uh, dumb brain, go ahead. Cu- cubism precedes Dadaism, it's or cubism. are they are they cubism? <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. Um, precedes Dada or is uh, p- parallel to Dada? Because I know Dada precedes surrealism in that Breton. By the way, there, there's somebody who's list, who may be listening to this who, cor- who told me to correct you that it's Andre <laughs> Breton, not Andre Brenton. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, sorry. <clears throat> Let me put an asterisk over this whole episode of this is a French shit episode. And I'm not liable for anything that I say. True. And um, I don't know what the squiggly line means over the letters, so I'm going to get as close as I can. Um, and Brenton is very much close enough. I don't even think there's an N in the name, though. Um, uh, I, I think cubism comes first. Um, Dada, I think, is actually more a reaction to World War I. We mm-hmm. haven't talked about it, so I'm sure. not entirely sure. Um, but I'm pretty I sure that was more that. of a second wave. Um, and, yeah, just, like, to place this, what I'll, I'll just read here from the, um, it's a essay called Cubism, which is basically, like, the de facto manifesto of Cubism, written by a couple dudes, uh, Albert Glezies and Jean Metzger, Met, Metzinger. I, I don't remember if they're writers or artists, but really close to the scene, like they're not outsiders, they're like writing from within. 
uh, especially considering that like Picasso and Brock didn't really write about themselves, especially in this era. To their credit, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so like Cubism, I think most people would know like or think first and foremost of its like formal innovations, its pictorial innovations, um, the way it's breaking rules and creating new rules of representation and perspective and walking around a subject and compositing a subject from different perspectives. Like it's a pretty literal way to explain it. Gets right, right gets right to the point. Um, and I could go into that. Um, uh, but I think that's pretty much self-explanatory. Like mm-hmm. there are pictorial rules that have been handed down through the Academy f- since the Renaissance of perspective, mostly, um, in order to construct realistic pictures. Right. And they're really fucking all, with all of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but why is Beep. it? Sorry. What? You said the F word. Keep oh. going. Just kidding. <laughs> kind of a bad boy. <laughs> the bad boy at Magic Camp. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll just start reading here. I think this um, I'll think, I think this gets pretty well to the point, although I wanted to pull out one thing. Um, I like this, first of all. The painter has the power of rendering as enormous things that we, that we regard as infinitesimal and, infin- and as infinitesimal things that we know to be considerable. He changes quantity into quality. And so I think that's a, like really gets to the heart of what they're doing, of pushing back against the quantifying, exacting, objective nature that was coming out of the Enlightenment and getting encrusted in like scientific Enlightenment, right. enlightened Europe, mm-hmm. right? Of trying to move towards um, an objective accounting of reality, right? And also coming with that is like all the classical liberal movements and revolutions of an enlightened form of government that is conquering the world and bringing it into the forces of rationality, mm. right? Which is what brings all of its imperialism. Um, what a shame. Along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me just go into this. There's nothing real. This is, this is really the, the why, or like the getting to the heart of it. There's nothing real outside ourselves. There's nothing real except the coincidence of sensation and an individual mental tendency. Be it far from us to throw any doubts upon the existence of objects which impress our senses, but rationally speaking, we can only experience certitude in respect to the images which they produce in our mind. It therefore amazes us when well-meaning critics explain the remarkable difference between the forms attributed to nature and those of modern painting. By a desire to represent things not as they appear, but as they are. As they are, how they are, what are they? That's, a, that's great. According to them, the object possesses an absolute form, an essential form, and we should suppress chiaroscuro and traditional perspective in order to present it. And they're just shitting all over your uh, favorite Renaissance no. Italians. What simplicity? An object has not one absolute form. It has many. It has as many as there are planes in the region of perception. That which these writers describe is marvelously applicable to geometrical form. Geometry is a science. Painting is an art. The geometer measures. The painter tastes. Great line. The absolute, Say that again. The geometer measures. The painter tastes. Mm. Which is going back to the 
<laughs> Going back to quality over quantity. The absolute is the absolute of the one is necessarily the relative of the other. If logic is alarmed at this, so much the worse. Will it ever prevent a wine from being different in the retort of the chemist and in the glass of the drinker? Mm. Question mark. Mm-hmm. I'll pause there. I can say more. That I just had a a, a thought. Um, once again, going back to Hemingway, I see a lot of a lot of Hemingway's aesthetic in there. With in in the way that you know, people have said this before, but he was incredibly he was an incredible describer of food, of sensory, sensual experiences such as eating a eating a piece of bread, drinking a glass of wine, slugging a beer in a cafe, and he enacted the experience of of tasting and enjoying those things through his language, right? It was not the measured description mm-hmm. of the thing, but the, the felt expression of the experience in the cadence of the language, in the texture of, of the image. And he's probably not the first person to do that, but he did it with a plum. <laughs> yeah, and like getting to the essence of a thing, but the essence of a thing is not objective and apart like it, it's never going to be defined objectively either by science or by religion right uh-huh. there's no like spiritual meaning to a rectangle sure um but rather like um excuse me coming through the individual subjective experience right i've got the data uh manifesto pulled up here and i'm just gonna s- say a few lines so philosophy is the question from which side shall we look at life, God, the idea, or other phenomena? Everything one looks at is false. I do not consider the relative result more important than the choice between cake and cherries after dinner. <laughs> that great? Cherries for me. Mm. Um, let me read a few more lines here. If the artist has conceded nothing to common stand... Oh, no, not that. Among the so-called academic painters, some may be well-endowed. And no, he's not talking about down there. He's talking about their painting skills. But how would you know it? Which is very interesting. Their painting is so truthful that it founders in the truth, in, in negative truth. The mother of all... The, uh, the mother of morals in all insipid things, which, true for all, are false for each. So basically, these people are so good at painting that you wouldn't even know that they're good painters because they're so robotically um, uh, obedient to, yeah, this, this rule of objective definition, just like uh, anyone who's concerned with morals or other stupid things like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which, right. because they're universal, are, can never be true for an individual. That's what he's saying. So anyways, just trying to drive home. They so were, the aesthetic of cubism reflects a philosophy that stands in opposition to traditional moral codes, religious yeah. codes, and ideologies. Right. It's like, That's it's, important. It's I need to just pin that. I need to just stamp it as, my, as it. the charter school administrators would say you just stamp that so i remember it later that the aesthetic has to match the the, the it's reflected in the aesthetic of of the 
philosophy, which is true of most artistic movements. I don't get the metaphor of stamping something. To, I don't either. To remember it. I don't. It's it's just you stop and you say, okay, we we said this. Hmm. Stamp. It's like a timestamp. Yeah, kind or of. Or signature. I don't know. It's some kind of stamp. How about how about this? I need to write that down. <laughs> Do you guys want to write, write that, that down? down. <laughs> that doesn't. That that wouldn't work. You need the jargon of, of a charter school in order to be a charter school. Well, I work for a software company. We don't have any jargon. <laughs> um, you don't? Yeah, you do. I mean, it's software for a specific... I'm just completely kidding. ...to an end. Um, 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 I'm running out of bandwidth here. Uh-huh. What I was going to say is yes, and it's one of the most like holistic... Uh, Movements like you have to give them credit for that, and that that philosophy is reflected formally in the pictures. Um, it's reflected like in their stance, obviously, to all the institutions and who they're like, who they're trying to, or like the atmo- the environment that they're trying to have a career within. Right, they're going up against like entrenched uh, institutions that ain't gonna like this. Um, and then also in their lifestyles, like I said, like they were, they were really placing their bet here and going all in. And you know, I don't, I don't know if you can say that they like whether that experiment failed or succeeded yet. Um, but they really went for it. To what extent their lie? What, what experiment? Yeah, like I don't know if some of them were shitty people. Right. Many of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's hard to avoid that fact sometimes of like in the end I don't know I don't think I would do it that way because it, it entails being a kind of shitty person not, right. not necessarily but with a lot of these biographies you could say that mm-hmm. I mean and most are like well known artists were sh- very shitty in other regards right um, well that gives me a pretty thorough knowledge of cubism I, I have always I've grasped the central tenets of cubism, I would say, but I, I don't think I've heard it articulated in that way. And I, one thing that comes to mind is that I, I think the fact that it, there is such a, um, a close and successful relationship between the form and the philosophy mm-hmm. of cubism that makes it last. Yeah. That's the reason why we still talk about it, the reason why we talk about Picasso as and the people within that school who who really did embody aesthetically the spirit of the times the zeitgeist so to speak um yes definitely and and so we can look at that and we don't have to parse it all out and and like understand all the context i think that's one of the flaws of i mean i think we'll get into dada more later is that the the manifesto and the Ideal, not even the ideal, because they try to destroy that word, ideal. Um, in fact, there's a little poem here. Ideal, ideal, ideal. Knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. Boom, 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 boom. Isn't that brilliant? So, like, these poetic manifestos are works of art in themselves, and many of them are brilliant and amazing, but I don't necessarily know if Dada, in its actual, in the works of Dadaist art is, is, is successful, but that's yeah. kind of the point, right? Yeah. So maybe it's just too esoteric to, to grasp in the way that cubism 
just makes more sense, you know? Yeah. It, it subverts while still remaining coherent. Yes, right. And it, it definitely, Dada definitely has a little more of a art school vibe. Right, for sure. No, it's like, it's, it's, the, the, it's the perfect, Dada is, is foolproof in a way because if something is shitty, you can just say, well, that's because it's Dada. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm, I'm subverting art. Yeah. I'm destroying the rules of art. Right. So you think it's shitty, that means you have a... That, see, now I sound like a, an uncle, a Zoomer uncle, or a Boomer uncle, but, you know, that's, that's part of the whole... No, that is a huge difference, because, like, the, um, you know, the Picasso and these, these guys, they were definitely work hard, play hard. Like, they yeah. took, they took hey, their... Hey, you and me both, brother. <laughs> they took their painting very, very seriously. You know, it was their life's work. They right. were not ironic... Yeah. They were extremely earnest about it, which, like... They would find, you know, the Dadaist art school kids, little little twerps, probably. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but, you know, counterpoint, like, that is a good um, critique from the Dadaists of, like, get get the fuck over yourself, like, especially coming after World War One of all this amounted to nothing. Right. And, uh, you know, Picasso is just, like, sitting in his studio while the fascists take over. Yeah. Um and painting a sad tree, you know, as an act of protest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah. <clears throat> anyways. Hey, Guernica, baby. Yeah. I mean, that was much later, but, um, and it was after all the shit had already hit the fan, but, um, yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. So, that kind of does bring me to another point, though, in, in kind of, backtracking a little bit to what I was saying about cubism with it being the form matching its function, the form matching its philosophy in a way that is comprehensible. So I'm going to use another per, another uh, philosopher's name here that I'm going to say incorrectly to piss off one person who may be listening to this, which is Walter Benjamin. I know it's Benjamin, but I prefer Benjamin. Oh, yeah. Am I Benjamin? No, don't think so. <laughs> exactly. How does that make sense? Um, am I Pablo? I would be if I lived in Spain, but... Um, okay. So, Walter Benjamin, part of the Frankfurt School, I think, one of these, you know, f- foundational leftist aesthetic philosophers, right? Um, along with Adorno and um, Jameson, guys who I've read in but through other people because I can't understand it when I try to read it myself. Two words, cultural Marxists. <laughs> Yeah, you think? Um, So Walter Benjamin was kind of a... He was a philosopher of the avant-garde. It was kind of a part of the Paris scene in that he was there uh, interpreting, narrating, you know, writing about the art that was being made. So, of course, he had perspectives on what was working, what wasn't working in terms of its relation to the... how it it supports or um, promotes the, the project of the left, Right, so that was a part of the avant-garde. You know, there's no getting around it. That even the Dadas, even whoever it may be, that was that was always a part of the conversation. Was how does this? How do we as artists function in our society? In in creating a new society? In deconstructing uh, imperialism? In uh, in some cases, expressing of a fascist, you know, kind of ideology uh, or or art. Um, so Benjamin was kind of 
doing that work, that philosophical work. And one of his essays, one of his kind of main ideas, I'm going to be oversimplifying it here, but there's a, there's a good takeaway where he says, the tendency of the literary work can only be politically correct, not that kind of politically correct, you know, um, you know, mocha frappuccino, <laughs> politically correct. The tendency of the literary work can only be co- politically correct, as in useful or uh, meaningful, if it is literarily correct. Mm-hmm. Meaning if it's, and you could apply this to, you know, visual arts, you could also j- maybe just say aesthetically. Mm-hmm. If, if the aesthetic work can only be politically meaningful if it is aesthetically correct. Meaning if there is some, there has to be some artistic truth in whatever form that may be in order for any political project or message to be realized. Not even realized, but expressed meaningfully or successfully, right? So this is you know, not a revolutionary concept for anybody who's listening to this show, um, but you could probably trace it back to Benjamin, right, for the, for the person who put it most succinctly. And so this is not necessarily a, uh, a tenant that was accepted, right? This is not the foundational concept of the avant-garde. I'm certainly not saying that. But Benjamin, as a leftist aesthetic philosopher, argued that this is the only way for art to have any sort of political efficacy whatsoever, is that it must be artistically correct, how do you define something as artistically and literary, cor- literarily correct? Part of the reason why philosophy is bullshit. But um, well, you know I'm how people would do it today. It's how many uh, how, how many, many hearts how many am clicks? I getting? How many likes and how many how many menchies did I get? Jeez, gee whiz. <laughs> um, so you know, th- with that idea in mind, and we we can dispute that. That's that's one of the kind of central questions of the show. I think this this program. Yes. Um, so, you know, I think the Cubists, you could argue, f- fulfill that. Or yeah. they, they, they are successful. But then, again, to your point, what does successful mean? Mm-hmm. Does it mean that you, you know, it's what makes its way into the academy? That that is accepted as the um, acceptable iconoclastic artistic paradigm? Or does it mean that it actually has some political impact? Mm-hmm. So this goes a little bit outside of this you know, early 20th century uh, Paris avant-garde, but this is a, you know, the, the seeds that were planted in, in these years and days with Picasso and um, all these people, that stuff continued to evolve throughout the 20th century, right? Of course, with, with film becoming the predominant medium of all consumption, of consumption of human beings for, for, for the most part in, in the mid-20th century. And I'm off on a tangent here, but um, the French New Wave, Italian neorealism, yada, yada, yada. Fast forward ahead to 1995, we have... The second Ninja Turtles movie. The second Ninja Turtles movie. <laughs> no, that's Ghostbusters. They're very um, similar. Yeah. Is it the same? Probably. Um, I can't remember the Ninja Turtles theme song off the it's top of my head. very similar. Right. Probably um, cribbing a lot from right. it, at least. So Ben and I recently watched Lahane, 
if anybody's seen it, which means hate in French. Which is the third Ninja Turtles movie. Yeah. It gets dark. <laughs> I mean, it, it very well could be. It's, it's three um, teenagers in the projects outside of Paris. Well, yeah, Mikey, Mikey died from OD, so it's just... <laughs> yeah, Mikey's calling them now. It's just Raph, Leo, and Donatello. Yeah. Um, but we don't need to get into the whole summary of the film, but we'll just, I'll just say that if you haven't seen it, you should see it. It um, is probably the best and most prescient film I could possibly imagine for the, you know what we currently face in, or the conversations that are currently being had in America, RE, police violence, police brutality, inequality. Um, Rioting. Uh, riots. Um, at such and such. I keep grabbing the mic. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, although something was wrong with my version. There's no color in it. Yeah, that was... I noticed that as well. I think I think there's probably a, a Technicolor version out there. Sick. You know, it's black and white, um, which is is one among many aesthetic features of the film that I think. Um, well, before I get into my my little explanation or explication, Ben, what did you think of the movie? It's a great movie. I, the black and white is actually like it's amazing. The cinematography of it. I don't. I don't know what goes into it, but like the look of it is amazing. It's like unbelievably crisp looking, yeah. mm-hmm. which is a very interesting choice mm-hmm. for like a grungy subject matter. Right. Um, I. Uh, it like it bummed me out a lot. Like it. It got me in a dark headspace, paranoid headspace, because it's like it's an hour and a half of like you know something bad is going to happen, and then, yeah, it does. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's just that feeling of, like, things getting ready to snap, which is kind of the point of, like, building, building tensions. Like, there's no way that this isn't going to end with somebody getting hurt. Right. Um, right. Which, is, again, is, is the point in the historical, you know, metaphor of it. Right. Which spe- speaks to my point that the form in the same way that cubism, anything we talked up about to this point, um, the form itself mirrors, matches any, if at all, political thesis of the film, which I don't think you could even say there necessarily is because it presents... I, it ends in a very ambivalent note. You could say a note of certainly despair. And who, and who, who, who was a good guy and who was a bad guy? Who's a bad guy? Who's a good guy? See, it doesn't spell that out for you. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, give it, check it out. Um, or, or was there an antihero? Oh, the yeah. Third option. Have you thought about that? That's crazy. There's an antihero, mm-hmm. uh-huh. like Cruella, right? Um, so it's just, again, a little summary of the film. Three boys living in the projects, all of differing ethnic backgrounds, are kind of going through a day in the wake of an act of police brutality, where a kid is shot by the cops, there's a riot, um, and it's just these three kids trying to get through the day, right? And approaching the that 
experience and that crisis in different ways, in, in the very limited, limited amount of options that people put in that position have in how they can deal with that. I think it perfectly capt- captures that sort of just strangled, truncated um, livelihood of, of, of your life being constricted by an oppressive occupying force, which is how the police were functioning at this time in, in Paris, apparently, um, at least in these communities. Another thing that's interesting is, is that like one of the big points of, of the movie is that one kid gets a gun Mm-hmm. And it's like the biggest deal in the world that he has a gun, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like, oh my god, how'd you get that gun? <laughs> it's like, what? Didn't he just thought, get it from Walmart? Right, like flying to another There's state. The and... thought of like a gun being this rare thing, this completely inaccessible foreign object that that is far too powerful to be in anybody's hands, yeah, is completely anathema to to like this story if it were taking place in the United States. Um, so to me, four out of five boxes of popcorn, no, um, <laughs> five out of five boxes of popcorn for Lahaine. I think we talk a lot about why stuff doesn't work on Magic Camp, on the limitations of political expression in art mm-hmm. or the incredibly difficult, like, needle that has to be threaded in order for it, for there to be any impact. I don't know what impact means necessarily, but to me, this is a movie that it's high on the pile. Yeah. It's up at the top. I give it a four out of four boxes of juji fruits that I've put in the freezer to get them really hard. <laughs> They're hard enough as is. Yeah. I'd say put them in the fridge and the freezer. It's a horrible idea. No, thanks. Um, um Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, what would be the contempt, like the, you know, Hollywood 2020 version right. of this? I can't, <sighs> I can't really even fathom. I don't know if, I, I honestly don't know if it could be made without a character, without, without a police character whose perspective you see. Right. Either as like, here's the racist cop. Right. Like, and either he has an arc of turning around somehow mm-hmm. or like the perspective of a good conflicted cop. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just can't see it happening without like, Ooh, like we're going to flip over this side, flip over that side, show mm-hmm. show both ways mm-hmm. as if, yeah, I don't know why I just feel like it would happen that way. Maybe I, my mind just goes to like crash. I mean, Oh yeah, that's, that's a good, <laughs> that's yeah, that's, that's probably instructive. Um, no, that, that's uh, a great point that, I think what you would get, you would get a lesson. Yeah. You know, and not just a moral, but a, a, a instructive, pedagogical explanation of why this happens, of police brutality, of life in the projects, right? Yeah. So it's that not that that's inherently a bad thing, um, but rather than what you get, which is felt, lived experience, yeah, right, first and foremost. Not necessarily because it excludes the possibility of, you know, teaching or showing or illustrating certain social problems, but because what is the utmost concern of the film is 
the truthful aesthetic representation expression of the felt experience yeah right, right. through right. the cinematography through the music through the cadences and through the way that things like dialogue and and um, the textures of the film play yeah. out if you want to relate it to like cubism or more to the root, like the Cezanne thing that Hemingway was pulling out. It's like giving expression to one form, one construction of existence, like the way it's felt and experienced from one point of view Mm. among infinite, like subjective experiences Mm -hmm. and letting that like completely shine as, as like an infinite, moment within itself mm-hmm. I don't know that's like necessarily no. what the movie is exactly that but I think it does that at definite points throughout for sure yeah mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I was just thinking too about like the difference between French and American culture because mm-hmm. what I'm like teasing out of um, you know the, the Paris avant-garde is actually pl- like giving voice and full expression to this idea of like you could live freely as an individual. You could live according to your own vision um, because, like, the big other is dead in all of its forms mm-hmm. and actually letting that play. Um, and I th- what I'd like to get around to is, like, where we are now in relationship to that idea. Is it dead? Like, do we just go give up and give go back? Was it a mistake? Whatever. But the question is, like, have we even done it in America? Because first of all, like killed the big other. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because first of all, like the French are, despite having reputation as a bunch of like, uh, baguette, toady and pansies, like are way more badass like than your average American. Just the like rapidness of their revolutions through history is probably one of that of just Mm -hmm. having a whole bunch, like every, every couple of decades. Um, they're in the introduction to the one book, uh, he's talking about like the French bakers, I think went on strike just to be able to grow beards. Um, <laughs> and, Hell yeah. And like the way they strike even now, like airport workers and all that, like yeah, dude. they do it like, it's like, a, it. it's like yeah. a daily thing. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, I'm, that's yeah. no, I know. Um, and they like, and the way they protest and riot, you know, is mm-hmm. way more serious and you get it in this, like if you're trying to relate this to, <laughs> like Lahane to, or, or like trying to pair it with Antifa. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. They're, they're a lot more, or I, I don't want to say that, but like they're serious. Let's just say that. Right. Now, one thing is that their police are not militarized the way ours are. Yeah. So right. let's be fair about that. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> just grappling with the reality that like America is, a, is still and has been like a deeply, uh, religious culture yep. and Puritanism runs really deep here. And I don't know if we've ever really excised that, that feeling of the big other, like over our shoulders or yeah, dealt with like the sexual repression and even like thinking about where did we get closest to mirroring that attitude of Paris in the aughts and teens be like what California in the sixties or something like that. 
Just kidding. What? Nirvana. <laughs> yeah. But but for real, like, yeah, San Francisco in the 60s or something. The one big difference, though, Pales is like... comparison, yeah. It's really interesting, though, that uh, there's a lot of similarities there. But one big difference is, like, the spiritual religious component of, like, the liberation movements in the U.S. like have way more of a spiritual component of like, and the idea, like in the 60s even like... A lot of Jesus freaks in San Francisco. Yeah, or or like even doing the Eastern thing of, Mm -hmm. but basically like the the 60s version of it, despite like the whole liberation and sexual liberation idea, like still was very strongly connected to like death of the ego so that we can unite as like humanity to save the world that's really really different than what they were going for Mm. you know in the avant-garde sure and so all i'm trying to say is deeply religious country and i don't know if even we've had the balls yet to like actually try what they were trying in paris at the time Mm -hmm. just i don't know it's 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 been different over here for sure Okay, uh, the theme we're kind of going for is like just trying to pick out things that sort of put where uh, someone is trying to just like very self-consciously where they're explain their ideology mm-hmm. and doing manifestos is a very funny way and interesting way of doing that because it's like earnest and you can get right to the heart of it, but it's also always going to seem a little ridiculous, um, but whatever. So <clears throat> as a counterpoint, to all the ideas we were just talking about. Um, what I was trying to draw out is like what's really at the heart of um, the avant-garde art movements and like the thrust of, yeah, that, that into the 20th century is like this idea of individualism and a sub- subjective experience, subjective perspective, um, and giving it like a higher place uh, than it had ever been given before. Like probably can't underestimate that. Um, and so I knew it'd be easy to find some really reactionary, uh, you know, analysis of that sort of thing. And I did. So I went searching and we both went searching for some funny Christian stuff. Um, and in, in like desire to piss you off, I went to the gospel coalition, which I know from it's one a, of my favorite publications, yeah. and I know from a past life um, that it is um, like kind of the the main place to go for reformed theology, pseudo pseudo intellectual. Yeah, that is self styled as intellectual and hip when applicable. Like big parentheses <laughs> about that. Like yeah, not trying too hard about that, but yeah, definitely like kind of sort of like coffee shop sort of reformed mm-hmm. um think guy with a pipe yeah. drinks a stout yeah, yeah and wears well this would be in 2010 i that, don't know what they're up the, to now yeah but um i can say for sure like of the other things we could and will dip into like relevant or oh i don't know i we want to keep tabs on evangelicals <laughs> um mm-hmm. just make sure they're doing all right 
um, that I know that these guys, despite whatever their like uh, CSS style sheet says, like fundamentally at, in their HTML, uh, <laughs> okay, they're they're super deeply conservative. Deeply conservative, like they are not giving they're an inch. Literal no, Puritans. No evangelical is giving an inch on theology. That is the big secret. Right. The big secret, like, is that there are really a lot of different flavors to evangelicals, and the nuances can be very stark. Like, and even like when when you talk about evangelicals in the news, like, it's really hard to know what's being talked about because the the flavors are severe. Yeah. But fundamentally, they are all the exact same right. in terms of theology. Right. There and any difference is like completely superficial. Mm-hmm. Right? Isn't that fair? I, I agree. I mean, you could maybe draw some distinctions when it comes to things like women in the pulpit. Yes. You know, yes. like that's maybe an issue, like a topic where the Gospel Coalition would appear more progressive than the no. Southern Baptist Coalition. No. Really? No. Not even? No. Like not even on the on the website? Like they no. wouldn't even give Len voice no, to No, they're... they're they're neo reformed. Right. They're Yeah. Yeah. But they would they would at least give the the guise or the like veneer of intellectually engaging with the idea. Yeah. So to your point, at bottom, they are it's Roy Roy Moore like Yeah. Uh seven hundred club. Yeah. It's a matter of emphasis, like really. Right. But at the end of the day, it's like they they're all gonna get together and like have to prove their point from the Bible, like mm-hmm. and, and it's just who can who can do that, the best. Yeah, but and they're never going to come to consent, like mm-hmm. because there's no way to argue that. But, right. um, yeah, I mean, not that there's not theological differences, but like it's what they would call the gospel that mm-hmm. like no one's allowed to touch, right? <laughs> which is the whole fucking problem, like, right? <laughs> um, which is why this is called the Gospel Coalition. Um, anyways, we might dip into this stuff just because it's funny. It's like, it's going to give a counterweight to trying to be too serious about, you know, some stuff. Hard and And it's just a good place to fish for like straw man, (laughs) straw man reactions to like the things we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Although in this case, it's like, I, I bring this up just because I think it is a good way to illustrate why this is not so simple. Um, uh, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, and the first thing we both went looking for is, like, I know you could pull up a, just a bevy of articles written by such dudes who are sort of, like, the intellectual, maybe even trying to be a little arty type of um, hipsterish type type-y reforms pastor, mm-hmm. especially, who then could write a completely vapid article about like David Foster Wallace. <laughs> well, that'd be a little a too. That'd be, yeah. I, I do know of some people who, who've attempted that. Well, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're in the avant-garde of their group, I guess. Right. Um, but yeah, more, even more generic than that of like the arts and Christianity or like why the church needs art. Oh my God. Francis, we got to get to Francis We're saving Schaefer. That, We're yeah. saving that. Yeah. So just to start off, like there's, you could very easily find a good, um, you know, polemics or endorsement of art from Christians in general or evangelicals of like, 
hey, I, you know, I love Van Gogh. I love modern art. Like, I'm not afraid of modern art. You Christians shouldn't be afraid of modern art. Um, and just sort of... It's, ab- it's hard to even imagine that, that phrase coming out of any Christian's mouth, to be honest. Like, just even the term modern art, <laughs> at the, just at this, in this moment, like, it just yeah. seems so far from any, any discussion. But, yes. yeah, no, I know what you mean. In, in a non, like... COVID uh, stormed the capital world or pre pre all that stuff. It was more, that would have been a more just like relevant topic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Things have, things have moved, but still all I'm saying is like, um, it would be easy to get a headline of like, Hey, no problem here. You know, Picasso cool. Like, but look at, you're looking at, a former yeah, that's right. proponent. Yeah. I mean, I didn't necessarily know the shit I was stepping in when I wrote it, but I did write a thing for a Christian publication that shall not be named, which we've already named, um, about literary fiction and reading fiction and right. Christians in fiction. I stand by all those things, but I also know it was falling on deaf ears like that that what i was saying or what just the whole charade of saying it was fairly meaningless yeah yeah well anyway keep going a for effort right um so the point being uh (laughs) that much easier said than done and once you crack the hood on this of like what does avant-garde Art mean modern art mean what were they about? Um, it's a no go. This it's is a no fly zone right. for sure mm-hmm. because of the ideology, which is real and they're serious about. It's uh-huh. a, they're not doing the same thing as like as what an evangelical would say of I don't know what they would say expressing the transcendent or something like that. E- even like a that smart thing to say. Right. Um, so this is a good example of that. This is, this is a series by a dude. Uh, maybe I'll say who it is, but it doesn't matter. Um, what, is, what is expressive individualism? So this is clearly like this guy's trying to get a little thing going. Like I said, that um, like uh, moralistic therapeutic deism was sort of like the sociologist term that was floating around 10 years ago of like, what's what's which is what's wrong with Christianity? Well, yeah, yeah. What's wrong with the other churches that right. don't that don't teach the Bible like right. us? Which moralistic is all just a way of shifting. Th- what is it again? That moralistic therapeutic deism. Yeah, it's such utter trash. That's such <laughs> dog shit. Yeah. So he's trying to get this th- something to pop like that. I uh-huh. would say expressive individualism is not enough words to really make an impact. Like it doesn't <laughs> sound smart enough. You it's, know, it, it's so vague. If it's you could so drop yeah. therapeutic moralistic deism in a Bible study, like, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. You're, you're hot shit. Dude. Yeah. You're, you're tough but smart and, like, well-read and just fucking hot. Yeah, and expressive <laughs> in individualism, A, doesn't sound smart enough, and B, d- sounds kind of good. Yeah, you know? it does. <laughs> it sounds like kind of a, you know, something to put on your vision board. Exactly. So, um, yeah. So this is like a multi-part thing. So let me just say how he defines this. We'll take our time with this if it's okay. I just want to get his point across. We define expressive individualism. It might be, when we define expressive individualism, it might be best to start with the slogans behind the movement. It's not a movement, obviously, but you be you. 
Be true to yourself. <laughs> Follow your heart. Find yourself. Slogans orient us to the philosophy. To the s- slogans orient orient us to the philosophy in popular culture. History points us back to where it came from. Robert Bella, and and the sociologist who wrote Habits of the Heart, trace the origins of expressive individualism back to the 1800s. So I guess he's saying like romanticism. Um, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, the Frenchman, problem, Uh who traveled extensively in the United States and wrote the classic Democracy in America, noted certain traits of American individualism in which the expressivist part grew later. Here's what he said about individualism and its (laughs) isolationist tendencies. I don't get how he's shoehorning that in. Individualism is a calm and considered feeling which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows and withdraw into the circle of family and friends with his little society formed to his taste. He gladly leaves the greater society to look after itself. And you know what? Today with the internet, it's even worse. (laughs) Um, There's a similar definition, ooh, you'll love this, given by the Catholic philosopher or philosopher, Charles Taylor, who uses the age of authenticity as a descriptor. We could define authenticity in different ways. When we're talking about authenticity as the opposite of hypocrisy, then striving for authenticity becomes a good thing. Parentheses, Jesus had a lot to say about hypocrites and the deceit that makes that mass inauthenticity. I can't, I, I can't even track with that. <laughs> I'm sorry, that, that paragraph didn't add to anything. I just started laughing at the way they thrown those little proof texts like Jesus Jesus was against hypocrisy um, okay 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 here's he's quoting from Taylor I mean the understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century that each one of us has his or own, her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society or the previous generation, or religious or political authority, to which I say preach. That's good shit. Right. right. Yeah. He's saying so he's, set, he's propping this up as the, yes. the problem. He's saying the key here is that the purpose of life is to find one's deepest self and then express that to the world, forging that identity in ways that counter whatever family, friends, political affiliations, previous generations, or religious authorities might say. Many a Disney movie has followed a narrative plotline of some, someone finding and forgiving and forging one's oh self-identity in opposition to the naysayers. Oh, my God. Hang on. That, that is one of my favorite uh, evangelical pseudo-intellectual tropes is Pix- talking about the problem, problematic um, morals in Disney movies. Oh, yeah. Daniel yeah. Tiger is, is trying to uh, teach to, people t- to, <laughs> to disobey their parents. Um, once we understand the term expressive individualism we, we get from Bella and his fellow sociologists, this is where Australian church leader Mark Sayers helpfully sums up several beliefs that swirl around in an expressive individualist society. These seven summary statements come from Sayers' book, Disappearing Church. The high, number one, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Number two, traditions, religions, receive wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. 
Oh, there's seven of these. What, what is he quoting? What is it's it? What just is some this? other fucking pastor? Okay. Um, yeah. Who's saying culture teaches? Culture teaches that to obey yourself. <laughs> and so, anyways, this is just his defining expressive individualism article. Then there's a bunch more of like, what's the problem with it? Let me just read the headlines from this whole series mm-hmm. because these are very like bloggy type Christian titles. This is funny. Why is expression of individualism a challenge for the church? The faithful church in the age of expressive individualism. Your church is not a restaurant. You are not timeless or placeless. What expressive individualism does to sin? Caught in the riptide of mere inspiration. Ministry temptations in a world of expressive individualism. Doing ministry in, in a world of expressive individualism. Uh, man, he repeated himself on that last one. Yeah. Um, you, you go while I look for another thing to read. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious to point out, but it's just so transparent whenever you hear those headlines or if you've been in the room when somebody's giving a sermon about that sort of thing, which I'm sad to say that I have, how, how just blatant, blatantly butthurt the whole thing is <laughs> and, yeah. and desperate and pathetic. Yeah. It's like developing this whole, this incredibly shoddy... Diagnosis it, of the whole world. Diagnosis of everything in order to justify being pissed off that people won't listen to you. Pissed, and pissed off that you could have had a little more fun at certain points in oh your life. Oh my God, yeah, seriously. It's and, like, look at all these people who are out having sex. Right. Who are out drinking beer. Doing instead doing, of doing cornholes, putting up, putting this in their whatevers, and, <laughs> and uh, doing, who are yeah, you know they're uh, they're doing doing stuff up there with their with their butts, and you want your uh, three month old daughter to see that? Okay, okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure, yeah. If that's if that's what you want, if that's freedom to you, have yeah. it, take it. No, but the just yeah, these that's the Nietzschean insight of like all this shit just comes from resentment. That yeah, these people are doing something that I'm missing out on, so right. I'm going to make God punish them mm-hmm. with my worldview. Right. Yeah, it's it's pretty sweet, man, it, and it feels good. I mean, what feels better, doing doing stuff that you want to do, or um, being vindicated by the words of a of a moderately credentialed pastor who who gets to tell you that you are doing the right thing. The latter. The latter. Definitely. It does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, the first reason why expressive individualism poses a challenge is that we've been commissioned to proclaim a message that is radically God-centered. The gospel changes me. The gospel challenges the me with I am. Which, this is what really pisses me off about this, is like the legitimate conflict, contradiction, in like an actual worldview of like subjective expressionism, individualism, is how can you reconcile that to communal good Mm -hmm. and needing to connect with other people and have shared meaning. Uh But what this motherfucker is saying is like the problem with thinking you're in charge is that you're not God's in charge. Like and right. it's you or God and uh, you lose. Like, so he yeah. says it, the gospel challenges me with I am. 
The one who created, which is not a good turn it of phrase. doesn't even make sense. The one who created and sustains us. Expressive individualism would have us look deeper into our hearts to discover our inner essence and express that to the world. But the gospel shows how the depths of our hearts are steeped in sin, obviously. Of course. It claims that we... That's what it's, it shows, above all. <laughs> yeah. That's what it shows. Definitely. Yeah. Um, that and uh, everyone, small children especially. Right. Um, it claims that, we, that what we need most is not expression, but redemption. <sighs> Dang. The world says... That's my favorite pastoral. The, the world says, <laughs> society says, buy that extra Snickers bar. <laughs> buy the PlayStation 2. <laughs> put, your, put your thing at one, you get inside you your want. Xbox 360. Yeah, invite your intern over <laughs> and give them a some massage. <laughs> yeah, call that 16-year-old intern over to your house to play checkers. <laughs> Lord knows you want to. <laughs> it's way too specific, like he's done all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the world's telling you, call up Kenneth. Invite <laughs> him over for Invite him over to, to, play, to play Mario Kart, and then you parlay that into a little something extra. <laughs> the, the world says we should look inward, while the gospel says look upward. Damn, this guy's on a roll. An expressive... Uh, he's saying it so many times. In an expressive individualist society, that message is countercultural. Yep. Uh, such instruction is easy to resist because looking up implies that something or someone stands outside us or above us. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> something that stands above us may exert some sort of authority or claim upon our lives. And like most good Westerners, we chafe against claims of moral authority. Wait, not true. I mean, what? Most Westerners are exactly <laughs> like you. Um, <laughs> Hang on. Oh man. Hang on. What? Did, what was it? Westerners chafe against claims of moral authority. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Um, that that is another awesome, awesome trope of evangelical or Christian writers is Westerners do this. Like they're not the the, like the like, uber westerner, right? Yes, you absolutely. Know? First of all, the idea that like, m- like that westerners are all like Picasso. Like, mm-hmm. they're most of them are evangelicals. <laughs> like, <laughs> so maybe he is talking about Europeans and like European influence no, on no, Americans. He's, ta- he's talking about people in cities where he did his church plant, yeah. and and don't want to come to his church because. They, you know, because he thinks it's because they don't have enough. Well, I mean, cool music. It could still be night, even if wherever he is, whatever town in America he's mm-hmm. in, it's ninety percent, ninety-five percent of all other people around, because that's the whole. Especially this, like neo-reform type of evangelical, can only think of themselves as a minority, mm-hmm. and espe- like especially because their whole brand is like we're the only good type of church within the church, right? And the rest are therapeutic, moralistic deism. Like, that's mm-hmm. a critique of, you know, megachurches, mm-hmm. you know. So even though everyone in this town isn't evangelical, it's not really... We're the only ones who are. Right. Yeah. Um, anyways, like, I picked this out because it's, like I said, I'd like to tease out, like, where we are in this experiment of, like, actually giving play to... 
I'll even use his word, you know, expressionistic individualism, which, I mean, even though he's doing a straw man and parody of that thesis, like, it is still pretty true of, like, yes, that is what the avant-garde was doing. They were saying there's no authority outside of you. Mm-hmm. Duh. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and this is a good example of just, like, this simple reaction, which I don't think is tenable at all, despite the contradictions that are there that have to be wrestled with and figure out, like, what do we do now? Like, where we are now, where mm-hmm. we need social movements. Right. We need more than individuals to become entrepreneurs and, like, and force their vision on the world. Like, right. that's not going to help anybody. You right. know, we need yeah. a communal purpose. But so you, I don't yeah. think it works to just say, let fuck this, let's go back. It was a mistake. Let's pretend that we live in like a theocratic society right. where no one ever had the idea that there was, you know, any flaw in the authority right. opposed on them. Yeah, that's I, it's certainly not whatever this guy's proposing. We'll say that. Mm-hmm. We'll say that. Which is which is come back into my little my little church so I can sing you the songs and you can give me a pat on the back and we yeah. can all feel laugh at my jokes. Yeah. Laugh at my jokes and we can all feel safe together and and you know have a shelter from the storm. Um so yeah, that's a that's a great point. I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe the avant-garde artists themselves could be instructive. Like I don't know if there's more to read into there with was was it considered did they consider it antithetical to their vision? Did they consider individual freedom expression um sort of uh transgression, did they consider that antithetical to collective interest? Right. Right. Uh, Probably not. I mean, I don't, you'd have to go down the list of like each individual, but for the most part, they're like super left aligned. Right. Um, And the other thing too is like, you should read some of this book where like gives a lot of descriptions of like this, the banquet years, and they're called that just because of like the parties they were putting on for each other and hanging out in each other's studios and apartments. This whole lifestyle that goes with their art is extremely communal. Like it's extremely un-American. Like there's you cannot picture this happening in America. No. Because like they're all hanging out in Picasso's one bedroom studio. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's an extremely collaborative sort of thing. So right. even when there's like you know, expressing that, that ideology, like the way they're actually doing it is like, is yeah. very communal. Yeah. Not, you just, uh, rubbing shoulders, getting, getting intimate yep. in Gertrude Stein's apartment. Yep. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, a couple of things, things come to mind and I don't want to keep harping on the evangelical stuff too much, but it it is such like a, there's such a, a loop and a confusing like duality of of when a person like that is talking about the problem of individual expression and yet is also probably the embodiment of it you know yeah. themselves like that what their worldview actually 
promotes and and uh, creates yeah. is total self-absorption. Yes. Total right. um, alienation, right? Maybe maybe the the Sunday morning and the Bible study are an exception to that where you bring food and you... And maybe, maybe there is some, you know, we've seen it. We've seen some some real forms of community in, the, in there. Don't want to yeah, be too, Yeah, but not too... in a... The, the pastor is completely separate from that process. So true. This dude, like, right. and preaching a sermon, like, that yeah. whole function of, like, that sector of the church has absolutely nothing to do with the better the The, the, the organic things that come of about of That's why churches. they're, like, none of them want to be pastors. Pastors right. supposed to be, past, you know, a pastoral metaphor. Right. Right? Of taking care of people. Right. They don't want to fucking do that. They just want to talk yeah. on the stage. Right. Yeah. Um... Sorry. No, you're totally right. But but anyway, that was just a, a thought that was going through my mind. Is that is that like we have it all we have it all backwards when we when we talk about the avant garde or we talk about um, the left or or radical politics as not we but um, as selfish as hedonistic. I mean, maybe they are, like in some ways, but ultimately these are things that affirm the inherent value of every human being. Yes. You know, and, and not to get too far ahead of myself with extrapolating from these manifestos and stuff, I don't think these people were necessarily saying that, but ultimately that was what so many of them wanted to do, was, was, was find some means of exploding the rigid categories of identity of of class of you know sexual moral religious repression that kept everybody apart from each other yes yes absolutely um i think it's totally evident when you start to think about it of like this guy pretending like he's condemning individualism when you're coming from that perspective, like that there needs that meaning comes from, I mean, he's not going to say this cause he's not aware enough of it. And it sounds too relativistic, but comes from a community, right? Like a shared set of definitions. Right. And he's saying the church needs, people need to stop inflicting themselves upon the church and understand that you're part of a bigger group. Mm-hmm. And we set you know, this, the terms are set like by the community for the good of the community. Like, okay, that, that, that could be well enough. He's not saying that he's saying, no, God defines like God is the objective judge here that says what means what and what you are. And, um, but the point of all that still is a complete fixation on yourself because in this, in his straw man of like individualism, it's like, I'm obsessed with defining myself, expressing myself, saying what I am. In his version of it, it's just, you're still going to be obsessed with yourself, but it's what we say you are. Right. We're going to tell you what you are again right. and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And this, the focus is still the same in his boogeyman and in his actual deal of complete self-absorption. Right. And like what the, I don't know if like this would have been self-conscious, but take like the Cezanne example or the Hemingway, like what Hemingway saw in Cezanne of like, is not, it's, it's, that is the true opposite. Instead of being absorbed in yourself, it's a being absorbed like in the other, like Mm. by looking at the same 
mountain over and over and over again, painting mm-hmm. again and giving an expression. Like, it's not like he's enshrining himself or his something from within his soul. Mm-hmm. It's like wanting to crystallize a vision that's like put upon him. Right. Mm. So it's, it's actually turning away from the self to like, to be fixated on the world or another person, like, mm-hmm. and to actually see it and to the artistic expression is what I see, what I perceive is like meaningful, important, and even like eternal mm-hmm. and deserves to be enshrined in a painting. And what anyone else says about that is irrelevant. Like, but again, the point is not just looking at yourself. It's, it's the object of the painting is, is looking outward. Yep. Yep. Um, I'm going to get, I'm going to get trippy here. I think it's, uh, it's maybe Joseph Campbell or Alan Watts. One of the two. Um, Jet. I think, come on. I think the quote is, we are the eyes of God perceiving itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if, if you think about what you just said, I mean, that's kind of the same thing that you just said, or, or maybe a step further that, that for Hemingway or for, for Cezanne to, to view that object, to refract it through all these different, you know, planes and, and layers of language is an expression of, you know, of the unified I'm, I'm, I can't I can't put words to it's it beyond you know? words. it's beyond words um, you know of, of that thing being re- seen and represented in a limited and flawed form nonetheless but um, perceived right by itself right and for itself yes absolutely i will illustrate this i'll i will put myself out there i'm putting i'm slitting my wrists you know, <laughs> this said, is my blood. this is my blood it's red <laughs> you slit your wrists so love me you said this is my blood it's red so love me <laughs> great line <laughs> got to respect tim meadows underrated underrated heavyweight, comedic heavyweight. So I'll put myself out of a deeply personal story, but I'll share it. Okay. Um, I've done this many times. Take my kids down to the botanical gardens. We each have paper and drawing stuff. And we sit. And this is not me forcing. Sometimes they don't want to do it. This time they wanted to do it. Sit down by the water garden where the lilies are starting to bloom. And... Ruthie's sitting next to me. She's got paper on her lap. She's drawing. I'm sitting there. I'm doing my drawing, which is like the fa- my favorite thing I've done lately is just like 10-minute pastel drawings. If they suck, then it doesn't matter, and I just do it like completely free. Um, Aiden's off like trying to find a turtle to draw, right? It probably lasts... 10 or 15 minutes, but completely quietly, you know, Ruthie's just sitting there dangling her legs, drawing, right? That moment is like, you know, I'm basically like beatified at that point. Like, I am God (laughs) at that point. Like, as far as I'm concerned, Mm -hmm. it's like 
you know, what, what else could you add to that? Mm-hmm. It's like an eternal, eternal right. moment. I'm seeing, and it just to like bring the art into it, like I'm seeing things, she's seeing things, like she's doing her little drawing mm-hmm. of what she sees and the flowers, and she's drawing, you know, in a way that the cubist understood of like this direct impact of like flowers, these is these pink three lines. Like it's not whatever, that's too too much. But mm-hmm. um so yeah, just to illustrate that of like the perception of each of us like looking at me looking at her, her looking at flowers, is that what you're talking about. Um and this motherfucker, he's like, well, you know she's totally depraved. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know this world has fallen. Fuck you, dude. Yeah, seriously. Close your yeah, he's saying stop looking at the fucking flowers. Yeah. You're you de- you don't deserve to look at the flowers. <laughs> yeah. I don't care what you have to say about the fucking flowers. Come sit before me. <laughs> yeah. Neil. You know the flowers are beautiful. Mm-hmm. But the flowers point us to Jesus. <laughs> but the flowers are a portal. They're a, uh, they're a mirror video game. They're a shadow. Um, yeah, that's uh, we could go on that all day long. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, Picasso points us back <laughs> to the one on top. <laughs> he greater I. He's greater than I. Yeah, that's that brings back some unpleasant memories of like really loving art like really kind of falling in love with art in college, literature, you know, Hemingway, all these people who I was reading and and art that I was seeing and just like contorting my my body and mind to figure out how this confirmed. Yeah. Or like connect. I was like, I can't figure out which one is supposed to represent Jesus. (laughs) Well, not even that. It was just like, how does this fit? Like, I, I... what am I supposed to do with this? And and I wanted, and it was great because I I went, you know, my my teachers wouldn't ever allow for that type of thinking. This was at a Christian college, and I was like, "Aren't you the one who's supposed to say how this is, how this fits?" Hmm. And that was like, you know, thank God for those teachers, but who yeah. didn't who didn't do that? Right. Yeah. That's that's a con- that's a typical dynamic, though. It's like the students are more conservative than the yeah than the professor. Right. Almost always. Let's go. That's. It's true, folks. Your children are being indoctrinated. Yep. By by right. liberal cultural Marxists in right. universities. How's uh, Professor Peterson doing? Last I heard, he had gone to Russia and he was like hooked on uh, some like like life support pills or, something? or something. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I that's a bleak uh, that's a bleak rabbit hole to go down. Um, I do yeah. have a friend who a good friend who may be listening to this, who was telling me a story recently about he, a woman who he, he was seeing, who he wasn't sure if it was going to work out. And it was kind of like, they had only been on a couple of dates. And then she, as we were talking on the phone about this, she texted him that she was reading Jordan, Jordan Peterson's <laughs> 12, 12 rules for life. And, but, but she had no idea who he was. Yeah. You know, it's like, which I think, my my totally. response was like ninety percent of people who read Jordan Peterson, not ninety percent, sixty percent, seventy percent, have no idea the context with, with, with in which he exists yeah. as a reactionary, totally alt right, you know, troll. Um, 
and and really just think like, oh, this guy's smart. Like, yeah, he has it's like, okay, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna read a smart guy book. It's it's yeah, it, and that's like why it's you can still get his books in airports. Like last time I was in airport, it's still there. Like <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> it's just so. It's so pithy. It's so accessible. Yeah, except that it's 600 pages long or right. whatever. And it's just all variations of like, stand up straight. Don't be a pussy. Yeah. Aphrodite was a pussy. <laughs> you know, or just some, name some random Greek. Agamemnon. Yeah. Agamemnon disobeyed his, his chosen purpose or some, some bullshit like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My uh, my uh, my stylist. What do you call uh, the person who cuts your hair? <laughs> Not that you would know. <laughs> <laughs> Burn. You mean me? <laughs> uh, if they're not a man, if it was a man, I'd it's just say a, barber. Uh huh. Barberess. I don't think that's right. You're. Um, you would say stylist. Sure. But that sounds pretentious. Anyways, just a uh, you know average average chick. Mm-hmm. Late twenties, reading Jordan Peterson. Yeah, I was yeah. like, "What are you doing?" Like, she, she just told you that. Apropos, no, nothing. she had the book in there. Oh, see, yeah, yeah, that's bad. See, yeah. that's that's it's that that's of... the type of thing we could talk about this stuff all day, and then, and then something like that'll just immediately tank all optimism I have. That's like that's what is landing on people's bed, you know, bedside tables, like against their will. Yeah, in a way, and like. It's just being, like, bullshit is just being funneled to most of us. Yeah. yeah. Don't read, guys. Don't read. Don't read. Don't do it. If you have a choice between reading and not reading, don't read. Pick video games. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, that's all I got. I don't think I got anything else. Do you? How about you? No, that's all. I had a little bit about Ezra Pound, but it oh, doesn't really yeah. tie in. It's 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 okay. Uh, all you need to know, I mean, you probably already know if Paul's you made it this fan. far. Huge fan of his politics art and his and, art and artist, <laughs> inseparable. He inseparable. Um, no, I was going to say the opposite. Um, that's really all I have. I think this is a great first step back in back in the the lab. Um, and. Uh, what what do we have to look forward to? What do the campers have to look forward to? Um, so yeah, what I think what we're gonna try and do is like just try and stick to some good like primary sources wherever possible, mm-hmm. where it's like people directly contributing to a movement, talking about it. Um, and there's a lot of manifestos, manifestos still out there uh-huh. that we could cover. So I like kind of doing them where it's like ideology on the surface. It's kind of a, a nice theme. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, we're, we're talking about doing one of these in my pop-up camper. Mm-hmm. So that would really take up the camping metaphor to the next level. To another level. Um, you know, we're going to go with the flow. We're going to see where things go. And I'm on summer break, so I'm just like, my I've got my, my hair is blown in the wind. I'm just, you know casting about still i think we still have i've still got a merton episode in me at some point in Mm. fact i just recently picked up uh seven story mountain which is his memoir his autobiography yeah it's just too long but there are some really interesting passages um where he you know he'll just riff on something and he's like this guy is 
He knows his shit. He knows what he's talking about. Even while he will contradict himself with some Augustinian self-loathing. You know, that's what his earlier work tends to do is like he'll say something brilliant about art or like culture or something and he'd be like, but this is all meaningless, but that's meaningless compared to the, you <laughs> know, which, which is like part of his dogs off. of his. Yeah. That, that was part of it. I mean, he was, he was that contradictory at times and it, it took him his whole life to reach a sort of paradoxical understanding of, of his belief and his, you know, complex, complex views on politics and art. Yeah. Yeah. Good guy. Too bad he was a different religion. <laughs> Catholic. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, we made it this far without saying our catchphrase, so I might as well say that. For anybody with a little bit of extra time after school, I have plenty of time. I have two whole months after school now. So hmm. we'll see you again soon. Adios. Adios.